Today on the podcast, we're talking about burnout. My guest is Dr. Jenny Brockus, and she told me that burnout is something that can often sneak up on people who we might even identify as being the most resilient. The good news is that it's preventable, and I give her a call to learn more about what it takes to help ourselves and our team thrive and avoid burnout. Joining me on the phone is Dr. Jenny Brockus, and she is an expert in the science of high-performance thinking and creating thriving teams and leaders through improving brain health and well-being. How often do you feel stressed, under pressure, unable to think straight and groggy in the morning? Well, as an award-winning speaker and facilitator and trained medical practitioner, Dr. Jenny can help you understand why you think and act the way you do, and then implement a science-backed behavior change so you can make distractions, foggy thinking, and mental roadblocks a thing of the past. I'm so excited to have her on the phone. Dr. Jenny, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Great to be with you, Shane. I've been looking forward to our conversation since we caught up a couple of weeks ago, knowing the conversation that we're going to have today. So looking forward to jumping right into it. But before we do, on the show, I love doing fast facts and it just gives people, to get, gives people a chance to get to know you a little bit better. <laughs> so the three questions that I ask people is, uh, where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Where was I born? York. My first job was in um, a Bowater Scott factory in the UK. They make paper towels and tissues. And I worked in the canteen okay. with or without sugar. Um, what was the third question? <laughs> And what do you do now? Oh, right. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, by trade, I'm a medical practitioner and board certified lifestyle medicine physician, which means that I talk a lot about prevention of illness. And I work as a workplace health consultant, which means I basically work with different organizations and groups of people to help them know what it takes to be the best version of themselves, both from a mental perspective and from a physical perspective and from a cognitive perspective. So it's the whole kit and caboodle. So I talk a lot about mental well-being. I talk a lot about psychological safety and I talk a lot about burnout prevention. Yeah, which I think is one of the first times we crossed paths. We were at a, I think you were speaking at an event that I was speaking at as well at the same time. We crossed paths briefly there. And so when I um, heard and I saw through LinkedIn later on, um, which would have been months later, um, that you had written a book, I was like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> I have to reach out and must get you on the podcast to come in and not just to talk about the book, but talk about what yeah. you do. You're an exceptional speaker. I mean, going back to sort of the journey that you're on as a, as a medical professional, there's the decision that you could go down the path of staying within that that corporate space mm. and then obviously going out and taking a message which you're quite passionate about to the world as a consultant um, or as a subject matter expert. What made you choose to go down the path of taking this out and, and taking a message out into the world as a as a consultant? Oh, that's a, that's a massive question. How long have we got to discuss this? <laughs> <laughs> I was very happily ensconced in general practice. I was the principal of my own group medical practice. Um, we're doing very well, very successful. I had been frustrated for a while that many of the people I was seeing and, and helping them to get better with whatever ailment they had were often dealing with things that were entirely preventable. And that really blew me away that there was so much that could be prevented before it started. And much of the time it was due to high stress at work. People were just stressed mm. to the max. They were coming in with all sorts of physical ailments and mental ailments. 
Um, some of them experiencing burnout as well. And I thought, oh, we've got to do better than this, surely. And then <laughs> being a workaholic, perfectionist, high achiever person, very, very motivated, very self-driven, I sustained burnout myself and uh, actually lost my business. So mm. having walked away from that, well, I crawled, I didn't walk. Um, and then still went through mm. the recovery phase, which took a long time. And then thought, what the heck am I going to do now? Because I didn't want to go back into general practice because I knew that was going to just lead me into the back, the same path where I'd been before and I didn't want to go there. And I really wanted to do something that would use my skill sets, but in a, in a useful way that was different from what I'd been um, allowed to develop. Because when, you, when you're trained as a doctor, you're trained very much within a very narrow bandwidth, if you like. It's like, you do this, you ask these questions, this is what you do afterwards. So it's very constrained, um, very conservative in outlook, and it's all sort of mm. scientifically based evidence that you're basing your knowledge on. And um, I've always been a bit of a cat that likes to work by, walk by herself. And <laughs> I decided, you know what, there is so much wrong with our health system, especially with our mental health system, let's shake it up. Let's do things differently. Let's go to the source of the problem, which from my perspective, was the workplace um, and mm. look at what we can do to not just keep people well, but to give them the tools and strategies they need that they can look after themselves, but also look after others. And I'm very much about community, whether it's a, a work community or a life community or family community. I think the better we get at understanding ourselves helps us to understand others better and then we automatically become more able to use the human traits that support us the best. And I'm talking about kindness, empathy, compassion, things like that. Being nice. Mm. You know, I, <laughs> all these things that people go, oh, you want to be nice? Really nice? And I say, yes. Why can't we be nice to each other? How about we, we do actually do what we talk about, which is this inclusion and diversity piece. I, I get really frustrated with all the lip service that's given to these things. And it's like psychological safety. Lots of people say, oh, yes, I'm really into this and I'm really into developing a growth mindset because it's fantastic. But they actually don't walk the talk at all. Yeah, yeah. we've got to do things differently. I mean, going back to the, uh, the walking the talk conversation, let's go back to you, you used a word which kind of you know made my ears prick up, which is this word burnout, um, which many people uh, would have some kind of experience with, whether it's themselves or it's whether there's someone that they yeah. know. Um, but we often use burn, burnout as a bit of a throwaway term for feeling a bit overwhelmed. Yeah. Whereas the burnout that you're talking about is not the kind of, I just feel a little bit stressed out, a little bit overwhelmed. It's a different kind of burnout, isn't it? Really, the, the, the core definition of it is you said I crawled away from mm. this experience. Mm. Um, can you unpack a little bit more about what that kind of burnout looks out looks like? Okay. So burnout was reclassified by the World Health Organization a couple of years ago. Um, and they were very clever and cautious in the words they used. They said basically it comprises three elements: extreme exhaustion. And this is beyond just normal fatigue. This is you're exhausted of being exhausted. And it's a physical mm. and mental and cognitive exhaustion. You can't think, you can't move, you can't do anything. So you're beyond tired. The second thing is you become increasingly cynical and negative about things that normally would light you up and motivate you and you feel passionate about. That all sort of disappears. Um, I stopped caring and I knew something was horribly wrong when I stopped caring because my whole modus operandi had been about being of service to others. I mean, the whole reason I set up my own practice was to 
provide the highest standard care for other people. So when I realized that I'd actually stopped caring, something was horribly wrong, but I was in denial at that stage. So that's another part of the story. And the third piece is that there's a general loss of efficacy or effectiveness. You you know you're capable of so much more, but you just haven't got the energy or the motivation or the desire anymore to put in any effort. It's, it's just too hard. You just want to crawl away to the nearest rock hide underneath and be left alone and so Mm. it's it's not a great place and it's something that sneaks up um, behind people and the worst thing is although we know it's entirely preventable most of the people who fall foul of burnout tend to be those people that are identified as being the most resilient the most capable the most sort of organized people that say oh yeah I can do this I can do that and do the other because normally they can but because they are very driven people and know that they're capable of so much where they lose sight of the fact that they're still human and they have limits and the thing about being resilient is we're taught that you know to be resilient you've got to gird your loins and keep on pushing no matter what (laughs) stiff up our limp chaps and the problem is we forget that we've got to stop at some point and because we've lost sight of where that stop sign is we push past it and that's why normally if you're exhausted you would just say you know what I've had enough I need to rest I need to restore I need to go and do something else whereas when you're verging verging on burnout you lose that break and you keep on going until you fall over into a big heap you generally look back and see the signs somewhere along the way but usually with the gift of hindsight you're like I probably saw some red flags somewhere along the way Like, what do you think we're missing? Like, why are people like, who are potentially like really high performing people, Mm. why are we ignoring the flags? Are we missing them? Are we not seeing them? Are we not talking about them? Like, how do we keep trailblazing past these red flags? I think a lot of it is actual cultural expectation. It's the norm to be super busy, um, always hustling, always seeking more. It's grow, 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 grow. Otherwise you get left behind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this has just done us a huge disservice. Uh, we've, we've lost sight of how much we actually really do want or need on an individual basis. It's like a company that is enjoying the fruits of its success. And as it becomes more successful, it gathers momentum and it's growing faster and bigger by the moment. And then sometimes it just reaches critical mass and it all goes falls down like a deck of cards. And that's exactly what happens to us as humans, because we think, oh, this is great. I must be doing something right because, you know, everything's falling into place. How great is this? But not always. Too much of anything is not always good for us. Yeah, I remember a few years ago, I read an article. Uh, it talked about the conspicuous consumption of time. And they talked about the transition from what was once the conspicuous consumption of money, which is how do we, how do other people perceive us based on how we spend our money? Now it's shifted to this, how do other people perceived us, uh, perceive us based on how we spend mm. our time? And, you know, people would spend money on art. And the reason they would spend money on art is it, it showed that you had this wealth um, that you could purchase things that were very scarce. And so there was this value based on scarcity. And what they talked about is this distinct shift where now we value our time based on its scarcity, which is if I have a little amount of time left, then it's really valuable if I give it to you. And what I looked at was this um, this advertising campaign and the transition from, um, I think it was BMW or uh, it might have been BMW from early kind of like, not even that far back, like late 80s, early 90s. Mm to the Super Bowl commercials of BMW in, in 2017. And in, in the early uh, late 80s, early 90s, it was people playing tennis. It was people going on cruises. And it was like the, 
the car through the countryside. And in 2017, the, the, the commercial for BMW was what they called the business athlete. And it was a person hunched over their desk in the middle of the night with a lamp above them, kind of working through the hours, yeah. right? Because we demonstrate our value and our worth through like just com- you know, cramming everything into our calendar because it makes us feel more important. But do you, are you seeing that change? Are we are we pushing towards like overdoing it? We've definitely overdone it. And I, and I think we have bought into the idea that this is the way to success. And I think the key messages that I think people have actually gained or insights from the COVID pandemic is that less is so much more. Because mm. I was f- so furious when Jack Ma came out a couple of years ago, you know, the, the founder of Alibaba, when he's he was extolling the virtues of the 996 rule, because he said that's the only way to be successful. You, you know, you can't expect to be remotely successful unless you adhere to that. And that's basically working 9am to 9pm six days a week. Well, that, that is so wrong on so many levels, principally because we know that overwork kills people. So why would you enforce that on anybody and sh- choose to shorten their life? I mean, we talk about churn and burn. I mean, that's just taking a step too far. Yeah. And then we, we there are other people, you know, there's Elon Musk who says, you know, working 80 hours a week, of course. Why, why would you not? Because, you know, that's the only way you can do these things. And I, I say, well, no, actually, some of the greatest insights people have had is when they've sort of woken up from a dream. Sometimes it's when we're out walking in the bush or completely uncoupled from all that focused thinking. And But we're all different. So it's about recognizing that trying to enforce certain ways of doing for everybody to adhere to is actually ignoring the fact that by being given greater autonomy to do what you know you're capable of in the best way is, is shortchanging us. And I think, you know, Tim Ferriss and his four-day or four-hour working week <laughs> probably goes to the other extreme. I think it's somewhere in between. And, and certainly the research suggests that, you know, optimally we can work maybe sort of 35, 30 hours, 38 hours a week and deliver our best consistently because we're not designed for long-term focus. And by trying to sort of keep on keeping on, we're just exhausting ourselves and producing less than stellar um, work as as a result. So why do it? Why do we do it? Because people like me are workaholics and we love our work and Mm -hmm. we justify it and say, oh, well, I love my work. Therefore, it's not work. Therefore, I give myself permission to to do the wrong thing. But, you know, it it doesn't work like that. I'm not sure what you've seen over, like, because we're, we're in a similar space and, you know, in the small business space, when you're either a solopreneur or in a small business, you are surrounded by what is, you know, what we describe as the hustle culture. Yeah. You know, there's people always talking about hustle. Yet what I see in conversation with people is people are the anti-hustle culture yes. with like, I don't want to get caught up in that. Yet both of these worlds seem to exist at the same time, which is like, I don't want to be a hustler and I don't want to have that kind of burn myself out culture. But at the same time, we still idolize and celebrate yeah. people who are hustling. Yeah. Is that, has that been that's, your experience? Have you seen that? That's definitely my experience. So you, you do see the sort of two, the two polar extremes. And that's probably why we see more people now choosing to move out of the cities. You know, they want to lead mm. a quieter, more sustainable life where they can actually grow vegetables and spend time with their families, et cetera, et cetera, rather than feeling constrained and having to sort of do everything for the corporate, at the corporate altar of success. I think it's, it's about working out what works best for us and what's best for our given circumstances. And, and I recognize too that not everybody has a choice. I mean, if you're working for somebody else, depending on the setup, 
you will be expected or invited to work in a certain way. I think what counts is enlightening employers and organisations to get that Adopting a person-centered workplace culture actually enables people to bring their best selves to everything they do. And this is where, by providing a psychologically safe workplace, you're tapping into the existing potential that exists already in your workplace, rather than always seeking, oh, we need to get somebody else in. Actually, if you if you look inside, you've actually got it already. It's, we always It's funny, it's going back to sort of the grass is greener on the other side, isn't it? And yet we forget mm-hmm. that we've got plenty of green grass right here around us. So I'm, I, my mission is to help leaders to understand, A, they're not doing anything wrong necessarily, but there's so much potential for improvement to make work worth working for. Um, because work is good for us when it's good work, but it's not good for us when it's mm-hmm. when it's not. I'm, I'm so interested to hear what you've noticed, um, given the space you're in over the last 12 mm. months. Um, obviously one of the big things is that the world in some ways slowed down yeah. and people had that chance to reevaluate a lot of yeah. things, but also at the, sa- the same time, it was very mentally demanding on a lot of mm. people. So what have you observed over the last 12 months in the workplace cultures and um, especially around this area of burnout and mental mental well-being? Well, certainly with the burnout, we're seeing uh, an enormous upsurge in the numbers of people experiencing burnout, particularly those people working from home, simply because of the demands. Uh, I mean, if you if you live on your own, that's, that's one thing. But if you're with a family um, and you've got a partner and kids to juggle around, and maybe extended family to think about. We know that the average person is working anything up to an additional two hours a day on top of what they would normally be doing just on work-related things. And that's not taking into account everything else that's going on in our worlds. Plus the fact we've got this ongoing uh, emotional stress, the anxiety associated with the ongoing pandemic because we've got financial worries, we've got economic worries, we've got health worries, we've got family worries. All these things in the background, which are chewing up our mental bandwidth, that's adding to our cognitive load, as it's called, which means that we've got far more to try and juggle in our heads every day, and we end up totally exhausted. So why is burnout on the increase? Basically because of that. Um, and it's and it's not just Australia. I mean, the research indicates this is a global experience, and, and different people experience it differently. We know, for example, women experience burnout slightly differently from men. Women tend to have much more of the exhaustion piece. Some men don't get that at all. They get more of the cynicism. And that's Mm. just the way it works. We're all wired slightly differently. So I think it's important not to lump it all into one basket and just recognize everybody experiences it slightly differently, but not to diminish the impact it has on somebody's health and well-being. And with mental well-being, we know that anxiety, depression, panic disorder, PTSD, OCD, all these other mental health conditions can you know accompany burnout and I get very frustrated when I hear stories of people telling me Jenny I'm pretty sure I'm burning out but my boss doesn't believe me they'd say I'm just stressed I just need to take time off I just need a weekend there was I can't remember which company it was you might remember um recently they sent out a pamper package or a, a hamper to their employees as a way of acknowledging that They had all worked exceptionally hard for a prolonged period of time, as if that was going to sort of make it all feel better. (laughs) It was a nice thought, but it's totally unhelpful, really. If somebody's burning out, they need assistance to address what's 
contributing to that. And that means looking at the job design. It's about managing expectations on both sides of the fence uh, and all these other things that no number of pamper packages or weekends off are going to fix. There's There's been a trend that's going around on social media over the last few months, especially last year. I saw it quite a lot where it was the person speaking to their employers and they're like, how can we best serve you to you know, make sure you're not burning out? And they were like, you know, give us our, you know, give us space, like time, manage our workload, all these lists of things that they could be doing, have proper interventions within work. And they were like, the response from the employer was like, we're going to do a pizza party. <laughs> and it's like their way of addressing burnout and mental health, which I thought was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Um, but what you're talking about, one of the things that I find is so fascinating, I wrote an article back in 2017 on Are You Okay Day? And it was called Ways to Say You're Not Okay. And I wrote it because often people ask the, uh, the question, are you okay? But as the recipient, I don't really know how to respond to that question often at times. I just, I, I kind of wrote it not really thinking too much about it. And it's been sitting on my website. And in 2017, it got maybe three or 4,000 views on my website. The next year, it got 4,000 views. In 2020, it ended up with about 11,000 views on my website. And it's already up to 4,000 at the start of this year. More than anything else I've written on my website, I would say not a day or at least two days go, goes by that I don't get a message on my website from somebody saying, how do I have this conversation with someone to say I'm not doing okay? Mm-hmm. Regularly, consistently um, messages from people all over the world saying, I don't know how to talk about this. Do you reckon there is like, why is there still so much difficulty around talking about burnout or mental well-being? Yeah, I think it boils down to the fact we just don't have the opportunity or we don't make the opportunity. Uh, I firmly believe that the only way to overcome the existing and worsening mental health crisis that is taking place is by focusing on enhancing mental well-being and by making sure that everybody has the opportunity for open and frank and honest conversations on a regular basis where people are encouraged to attend and hear other people's stories. That's the only way it's going to work. And it's only going to work if if the employers give permission for this to take place. Because yes, we can get better ourselves to a degree. But when it becomes the normal thing, once a week, once a fortnight, or however often, to come in and just share how things are going, then you've got a real opportunity to change the conversation. And I think this is where we've got to go. Yes, we need to deal with mental health issues. Of course we do. And the mental health system, unfortunately, is on its knees and was so even before COVID. Um, and throwing more money at it isn't going to help, by the way. It's, it's really about addressing, well, if we understand what's leading people to develop problems with their mental health, what are we doing differently to elevate mental well-being? Because mental well-being raises resilience and optimism on our ability to manage these times of adversity. We're always talking about, oh, you've got to be more resilient. Well, resilience is not a test of endurance. It's about understanding that we've all got resilience within us. We just need to look, know where to look sometimes and to manifest that in a way that we know that no matter what happens, we can get through this time. And sometimes we need additional help from other people. Sometimes we can do it on our own. But just to understand that we have this already within us. And so we feel more empowered individually. And if you feel supported externally, that makes the biggest difference as well. This is the kind of question that I want to ask in all of this, which is I'm hearing two sides of this equation. One is the employer and the workplace side of 
creating a, an environment of what you're saying, mental well-being. Sure. So rather than focusing on just constantly reacting to a mental health sure. crisis, how do we create psychologically, mentally healthy spaces mm. for people? And then what's the responsibility of the individual, right? That we both have a part to play in this. So like, can you can you unpack a bit like who, what is the responsibility of each of those parties in this conversation? It's a joint responsibility. It has to be. I mean, the employer can put in all the things they think is going to make a difference to support an individual but the individual has to share that responsibility as well and take ownership of it each side has also accountability so it boils down to the fact that by being responsible for your own actions your own behaviors and owning up to when things aren't going well or when you need assistance is part and parcel of making a positive difference and when it is led from the top by those people who are doing it themselves because they understand just how important it is. You're giving everybody permission to follow suit because we always tend to look mm. to the leader. Well, what are you doing? What are you saying? You might be saying one thing, but are you actually living this? Or are you just giving it lip service and ticking the box to say, oh yes, I care deeply about my staff and employees' health and well-being. But you know, this is for them to sort out. I don't need to be involved. I had one CEO say to me, Jenny, look, I get how important this is. I really do. But going back to your conversation about the RUK piece, he said, I'm the CEO. I'm very happy to talk to people, but I really don't feel capable or even want to have the conversations with people who are you know, seeking help with their mental well-being. And then say, OK, no, 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 no. I'm not expecting you to sort of take that mantle on yourself. It's about understanding that within an organisation, there needs to be points of access where people know they can automatically go to find somebody to talk to, find somebody that can point them in the right direction and to practice those conversations where it's not about saying the right or the wrong thing. It's just providing these things on the side of our head the ears to listen. I'm married to an engineer. Love him dearly. We've been together a long time, but he's a fixer. So if <laughs> and I say this with the greatest of respect, you know, if there's something not right, he wants to fix it because that's what he's very good at. But in, when it comes to mental health challenges, the greatest gift we can give is our attention and to notice that something isn't right. And just to acknowledge that we've seen that as a human, watching another human saying, uh, I'm a bit worried, you don't seem quite yourself. Is there anything I can help you with? And ask the question, don't say, oh, I think you're a bit depressed. My, my aunt took some antidepressants and she feels much better now. It's, it's not that at all. It's about inviting questions in and not being expected to be the expert because you're not the expert. I mean, unless you're trained in mental health yourself, you shouldn't be going there anyway. But it, you can still be a human. Yeah. I mean, if you see anybody who's crying, upset, Hopefully, we'd be empathetic enough to say, you know, the reassuring, if you're allowed to, touch them on the shoulder and say, is there something I can help you with? Do you want a cup of tea or whatever? Mm. It's the human piece, humanity. It is. One of the things that I reflected on a lot during lockdown over the last year, I love looking into the origins of words and understanding how they kind of came to be and, and where, the, where the original kind of language is. And I looked at the word care and the, the origins of the word care, it comes out of um, the word lament. And it's this idea of some like of this kind of ability to be able to care for somebody in lament, which is that sense of grief or pain. I reflect on this question. When was the time in your life you felt the most cared for? And it was probably when somebody saw you in a moment of grief and they were there and they were present. And it was that ability to be able to be seen in the Absolutely. grief. And I just went, you know what? This is what exactly what you're talking about here. The way we care for people isn't just by being able to solve their problems, just being by being able to see mm -hmm. them and go like, I can see you're grieving and you're hurting and I'm here and I'm available yeah. for you. Yeah. 
And that's the best thing that's going to make the biggest difference to that person. If somebody knows that you care enough to have acknowledged that you've seen their suffering, then mm. we know that that is actually probably going to help give them the support and confidence they need in themselves to take the next step. Mm. That's amazing, isn't it? It sounds to me like yeah. this, it is. It sounds to me in this conversation, like these themes like of being able to just notice, to intervene and to have systems in place that enable a person to be able able to get the help when they need it to role model what it looks like. And, and you said this before, it's like, I could say I care about the, the, the mental wellbeing of my team, but I email you at eight o'clock at night and expect <laughs> a reply from you. It's, which is the kind of the walk and the talk, not aligning, yep. right? So as an employer, do our systems support people to be able to speak up? Am I as a leader modeling and role modeling what it looks like to create an environment of safety and mental wealth and uh, mental mm-hmm. health? And at the same time, am I actually, am I noticing and creating environments for people to be able to share stories and to see other people talk about this? Are these some of the big themes that are really important at a workplace level? Absolutely. Spot on. And I think the other person to be included in the conversation is the leader themselves, because there are a number of leaders I've spoken to recently who are suffering themselves and they don't always have somebody that they can talk to some of them do and especially if they belong to you know leadership groups etc but you know they say it's lonely at the top and we all need that one person or a couple of people within our inner circle that we can trust enough just to share that reality our reality now, whether that's partner at home or somebody else within the organization or somebody completely divested of, you know, interaction on that level, it, it doesn't matter. But I think, you know, everybody has to be included here. It doesn't matter what your job descriptor mm. is. We're all human. And at the moment, everybody is under enormous strain. And I think as soon as we get better at listening, learning, implementing, as you say, the better. And I think sometimes, especially in the corporate world, you can get so caught up in the minutiae of documentation that we then lose sight of the human being behind that wall of paperwork. So mm. sometimes bureaucracy can get in the way. Sometimes when you've got a very large organisation, you think, well, how can I reach you know, 5,000 people? <laughs> And this is where sort of nubbing it down into smaller hubs and where really successful workplaces I've seen where they have advocates, well-being officers, whatever you like to call them, who are at different levels within the, the organization itself, who are just there and everybody knows who they are. And they are the people that, you know, you know, you can go and have a chat to. And it's different from an EAP. I mean, the, the uptake of EAP service is woefully low, as we know. And it's because there's always this inherent fear, I know it's meant to be in confidence but I just don't quite trust the system when you're when you're talking about a system it's separated from the human concept when you're dealing with people then I think it's easier to establish that trust and if you've got the trust there then you're more likely to have a useful conversation yeah I think we're touching really nicely on the work side of this and and you've kind of you've hit like a bit of a nerve for me and in, in the idea of like who cares for leaders because I think um you know John Maxwell I think has an expression he calls the starving baker which is the person who's <laughs> consistently providing bread for other people and not eating for themselves like this is the role like leaders are constantly in this environment where they're checking in they're caring for others but like who's caring for leaders and this kind of comes back to the the balance right of what does the organization what's the responsibility of the organization then what's the responsibility of the individual like can we focus a bit more maybe on the leader mm-hmm. now like what's our own responsibility to self around making sure that we're in a, in a a mentally healthy space. It's exactly the same as for anybody else. I don't care who you are. 
I don't care about the size of your company. You are still a human being. And if you are going to be an effective and empathetic leader, it's about giving yourself that space to know when is enough, when to pull back, when to take time off, when to invoke the ability to be on your own five, 10 minutes or whatever, and just sort of put in place all those things that we know are so important and give ourselves permission to to undertake the same. I find it... The permission piece is massive, isn't it? It's massive. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sometimes asked to talk to different groups about the importance of sleep, which is great. But the irony is I know the CEO is often only getting four hours at night themselves. I'm thinking, well, okay, come on. (laughs) There's room for improvement here. (laughs) So it's about sort of... And this is where, you know, leading by example is so critical. But I get that, you know, again, it's that self-talk. When when you're in a position of leadership and you've accepted that mantle and you've got all these responsibilities, got a business to, to run, you've got to keep the stakeholders happy, the board, the staff and everybody else, you put yourself at the bottom of the laundry list. And then really, mm. to be the best leader you could possibly be, you need to put yourself at the top and say, what do I need to be the most effective I can be on any given day? So if sleep is your most important non-negotiable how do I get back into a better rhythm of sleep that's going to support me so I can actually make better decisions, show sound judgment continually and uh, be a nicer person to hang around with? <laughs> I spoke to someone recently and they were they were talking to their psychologist and that their psychologist had really intervened in their situation and said like, this is no longer just a conversation. This is now like an intervention stage. And she said to me, the psychologist has said to her, if you were having a stroke, you wouldn't say to the ambulance driver, could you just take me past my meeting? I just need to cancel a few things on my way. Like we, when it comes to our physical health, we would say things like, well, this is an emergency, yeah. but where they mental health, we're like, oh, I can't take Friday off because yeah. you know I've got this meeting. I can't, I pos- couldn't possibly move that. Like where does this internal <laughs> rationalization come from? I wish I knew, Shane. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> it's almost sort of inbuilt, isn't it? But this is why, um, you know, the, the, the Japanese government, for instance, to try and overcome the Kiroshi problem, sort of tried to mandate that employers should actually enable their staff to take a, a shorter or an earlier stop time on a Friday. But I think it was just a couple of hours and, and in order so that they could go and, and practice their spirituality and things like that. But it was really difficult to enforce and many of the organisations mm. wouldn't because the mantra of thou shalt work because this is our identity, this is who we are, this is everything we do is so entrenched. It's, yeah. it's like, no, I couldn't possibly do that. It's nice to know that it's not just here in Australia, but it's actually it's a global, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a global issue regardless of, of place or culture that we all have these stories we tell ourselves that, you know what, maybe I just need to work a little bit harder. Maybe I just need to have a little bit more grit, a little bit more resilience. And maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm the problem when really we need to take care of ourselves and stop putting ourselves at the bottom of the list. And guilty as charged. I mean, I've had severe burnout in the past. You'd think I'd have learned my lesson, (laughs) but no, uh, creatures of habit. Um, So when the (laughs) pandemic hit last March and we suddenly found ourselves in lockdown and people in our space of work all of a sudden found calendars just emptied overnight, all the workshops had gone, all the speaking engagements had gone and we were left like, what do I do now? Well, I better get to and create this online um, conglomerate. So jumped in, working, 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 you know, seven days a week, real sense of time, pressure and urgency to get this up and running quickly, mm. quickly, quick, quick. falling down into another big black hole and um, chatting with a psychologist. She said, Jenny, 
what are you doing for fun? What's, <laughs> What's fun? fun? I said, What's fun? And she said, Okay, <laughs> tell me what you're doing for fun. And there was this horrible silence, which seemed to be forever. It wasn't. It was just a, a few seconds, obviously. But I was really embarrassed because I could not think of one thing that I was doing for fun at that point. And the, you know, the, the penny dropped with a big clang clonk, to remind me that, hey, enough. Stop doing what you're doing. This is not helpful. You need something for fun. And we know that mental well-being is supported by doing those things that put us in that sense of awe and wonder. For me, it's being outside in the great outdoors. And we know now that spending a minimum of two hours per week in nature is actually critical to maintaining our mental well-being. And that's not very many minutes per day. And you don't even have to exercise during that time. Just standing, looking at the trees and admiring it all is sufficient. We understand that, you know, music, dance, all these other things, all these activities that we can do are absolutely vital to our mental well-being. So for me, it was dance. I was already walking a lot because nature is, has always been important to me for boosting my mood. But I started taking swing dance lessons with my husband. He was so thrilled when I told him I'd signed us up. I can't tell you. <laughs> I'm sure the engineer would have been <laughs> absolutely thrilled yes, at the idea of swing dancing. Wait. And I said, well, darling, you know, there's a pandemic on and they've just reopened the classes, but you have to go with your own partner because you're not allowed to change partners and you had to be socially distanced and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, he loves me dearly. So, of course, he came along and we've been going ever since. We really enjoy it. It's good. <laughs> so now I can, if, I I, if I'm asked, what do you do for fun? Well, I've got a list of things, including swing dancing. What do you do for fun, Shane? Well, that's, I knew that that question was going to come next. And as horrible as it sounds, running is my fun thing. Uh, that was something that I really got into during the pandemic. And it's my space at the end of the day when I when I want to go yeah. home, when you're already working yeah. from home, it's like the computer goes off and I go out and I run. So when I come home, I feels like I'm coming yeah. home. And I, I would I would ask this question to the people that are listening in the podcast now, what do you do What are they fun? doing for fun? And if, yes. if, I'm so glad you touched on it because this is, I guess it was bringing this conversation into land a bit, is that I'm so glad you mentioned the importance of, of seeing a cycle psychologist and I'm, I'm a trained counselor myself and I have gone through the process of counseling and seeing a psychologist myself and I just know how valuable this is and like for you speaking to people around this area of mental well-being how important is that kind of therapeutic relationship in avoiding burnout and moving beyond burnout just how important it's is it? critical absolutely critical and yet again we have to give ourselves permission to show our vulnerability when when I had my severe episode of burnout and my GP referred me to a psychologist. Again, it was like, what, really? I'm a doctor. How can I, how can, how can I go to a, well, you can imagine what was going through my head. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're going to think I'm complete Fruit Loop, should never have been allowed to qualify and all this sort of stuff going round and round and round, which of course was complete nonsense. And my husband said the right thing. He said, darling, <laughs> he just thinks you're another screwed up GP. Don't worry about it. He probably sees lots of people like you. And he, unfortunately, <laughs> he was quite correct because <laughs> this person actually did specialise in helping health professionals deal with their mental health challenges, which tells you something, doesn't it? You know, we are all human. It does. We are all at risk and we all benefit so much from somebody who is trained in this area, whether it's a psychologist, whether it's a counsellor, whether it's a psychiatrist, whether it's your regular health practitioner, it doesn't matter. It's having that trusting relationship where you know that the other person, going back to the care piece, cares, is interested and vested in you recovering as fast as possible from whatever health challenge you're facing at that time. 
Such a helpful conversation and some really practical takeaways for people out of this. And I just want to say a big thank you. And I know you've you've written a book on this. You've got Thriving Mind, How to Create, uh, How to Cultivate a Good Life, which is a book full of kind of resources and I'm guessing helpful tools for people as well to, to kind of navigate this. Um, do you want to give us a quick snapshot of why you wrote the book? I wrote the book because I was frustrated by the level of overwhelm, high stress, anxiety, depression and burnout and loneliness that I was seeing. Mm around the place. And this was before COVID. So I wrote the book before COVID and then COVID arrived and that just amplified all the problems that I was seeing. So the book was written yeah. really with some reminders more than anything else. It's, it's, it is full of how to and it's suggestions. It's not a formula that, you know, you must do this in order to be your best self. It's about dip <laughs> into, this is a suggestion. If this resonates with you, maybe give it a try. Or if it's something that you've used in the past but have fallen out of use with, reintroduce it again. Yeah. And you can pick up a copy of, of Thriving Mind in, in kind of all good books bookstores. You can pick it up online, I'm sure, through Amazon and a bunch of the other online uh, retailers. And people can find a whole bunch of information about you at drjennybrockus.com. Yep. How else can people connect with you? Easiest way is on LinkedIn. Uh, as Dr. Jenny Brockers. Yep. I am on Facebook, but I spend most of my time on LinkedIn. So I'd suggest people do that. Or they can always email me at jenny at drjennybrockers.com. I love to have a chat, always up for a virtual coffee. And I love talking with people. Oh, I love it. This, this conversation has been so helpful. And, and what I would say, a really helpful message and an important message all the time, but especially given the last 18 months that we've had around the globe. And so thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Shane. It's been great chatting with you. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week. 